It's estimated between 40 and 50 million people are struggling with Alzheimer's worldwide. And it's when we are in our 30s and 40s that we can make the biggest difference to make sure that we either avoid this disease or that the onset of it is much later in our lives. It seems like every day people are talking about the brain fog that they experience and how their short-term memory is slipping. And maybe even you have experienced some of that and wondered, like, okay, is this ADHD? Am I experiencing cognitive decline? Am I developing Alzheimer's? Like, what's going on here? If you've at all been worried about your own cognitive abilities and your future or a family member, this is the episode I need you to listen to. It's the episode I'm hoping that you'll share with others because there's so much we can and should be doing. This is literally costing us billions of dollars. And put the money aside for a second, it's costing us, many of us, our lives. It's a disease that doesn't just affect the person who's living with it, it affects the caregivers and the people around them. Today, my guest is Dr. Dean Sherzai, and he is a neurologist and an expert in dementia and geriatrics. He also happens to hold two master's degrees in advanced sciences, as well as a PhD in healthcare leadership. Dr. Dean Sherzai and his wife, Dr. Aisha Sherzai, have devoted their careers to the study of Alzheimer's. Today, not only do we talk about the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's, we also talk about what you can be doing right now, and many of the lifestyle modifications can change your life, can save your life, and can prevent the onset of Alzheimer's. And these are science, evidence-based suggestions, simple lifestyle hacks that you can make today that can improve your life, and that could also improve the life of a person you're caring for who's living with dementia. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Dr. Shurzai, I'm really excited to have you. Your expertise and the combined expertise of both yourself and your wife is really remarkable. And I'm going to link in the show notes to your books. It's a couple of different podcasts I've been fortunate enough to catch you guys on. And I really appreciate what it is you do and the approach that you have. For myself personally, I never worried about Alzheimer's. And I think we all feel the sense of invincibility. I've heard you use a term that we are approaching an avalanche or a tsunami of Alzheimer's. And what do you mean by that? Alzheimer's is a subcategory of dementia. Dementia is the umbrella category, which by definition means people are having memory and cognitive issues to the extent where they can't do some of their daily activities, whether it's driving or finance or, you know, taking care of their own pills, irrespective, they're having significant trouble. And that by definition is dementia. There are many types of dementias, but the biggest one by far, 70% of all dementias, is Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is a unique disease that has unique inception. At the earliest stage, it's usually short-term memory, disproportionate to long-term memory. I had two grandparents that suffered from this, and Aisha had two grandparents that suffered from this. And in each case, especially when they're starting to have this, they always say, I'm fine. I can remember 50 years back, but it's just breakfast. I'm forgetting what I mean. Yeah, well, that's the crux of it. And Alzheimer's is the fastest growing epidemic in the West. Mm. I mean, I know we have coronavirus right now, but we're talking about the chronic diseases. Alzheimer's is the fastest growing. In fact, it's by far overshadowing cardiovascular disease and other diseases as far as this trajectory. Why? A couple of reasons. One is because we're aging as a society, and that's a reality. We're, we're aging, and, and with aging comes chronic accumulation of trauma. Not that aging is equal to Alzheimer's, not by any stretch of imagination. I want people to know this, that this chronic accumulation of small traumas, and by traumas, I mean inflammation, oxidation, fat dysregulation, and sugar dysregulation, those four processes. Wait a second. So if you take care of those four processes, are you going to be fine? For a great majority, yes. And when does that fight start? Very early. I mean, we've actually been quoted as saying as early as birth. In many ways, it's true. Children that have had trauma during their childhood are at greater risk. We're talking about either social trauma or psychological trauma or whatever, or even physical trauma. Yeah, there. But in reality, in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, is when you must, you must, especially if you're a woman, mm -hmm. you must take on the battle. Why? Women are at twice the higher risk as men. Wow. And 
the fact that women constitute two-thirds of all dementias, especially Alzheimer's. Women also constitute two-thirds of all caregivers. I mean, this is a woman-centered disease. And the way we approach it, we are researchers as well. We have a clinical program and a research program in the communities. In fact, we're the only program physicians that are instituting our programs and research in the communities because we don't think that we need to prove the point of what works. Mm. By the way, what works is nothing I have to sell you. You don't even have to buy my book. <laughs> it's simple. I mean, I, everything we do, every penny we make is towards creating movements in the communities. And these movements are free. Things that you can do in your home, your work, and your communities. And they're profoundly important. Why? Because if we change those lifestyle factors by 10%, that's a bigger medical or healthcare revolution than anything else we've had, except for smoking cessation. So for us, it's a mission. Aisha and I met 18 years ago on April, well, 18 years ago. And <laughs> this conversation was about our grandparents who had Alzheimer's. Wow. We started our journey in well-known places. I worked at NIH, Experimental Therapeutics Branch, and, and UCSD, number one and number two places in the world. And Aisha did a preventive medicine and neurology and a vascular fellowship in, in, at Columbia University. So we did all of that, but then decided to take the road less traveled and work towards prevention. And that's where we are. Well, thank you for the work that you do. I think for most families, they don't begin to understand the impact and the importance of taking preventative measures until such a point where it's become problematic and we're talking about you know, how are we going to handle care for a family member? And it's long past the stages where it's become problematic. It's, you know, now we're taking away driver's license and trying to figure out, like, is somebody going to care for them? We're going to find a long-term care center for them. And what I love about the work that you do is you're really trying to shift the paradigm, really trying to shift the way that we think about Alzheimer's so that we're understanding the preventative measures, to your point, which are free. Yes. You know, sometimes we think about ourselves, look, I'm not worried about me. But if we do care about our family members and we do care about our children's lives, we have to start thinking about prevention now because statistically speaking, we are going to become that burden to our children if we don't take action now. One of the most interesting statistics I've heard you talk about is the effectiveness of what the pharmaceutical companies have been able to do and the effectiveness of certain types of exercise. Can you share with us, what is yeah. it we need to know? So I was part of the biggest clinical trials in the world at UCSD, which was the number one neuroscience program at NIH and, and at Columbia and everywhere. And after 400 studies that worked on mice, those poor mice, I was part of those guillotines that cut their heads off and then we studied. It's terrible. After all those studies, our success rate has been zero. Mm. We have zero drug that does 0% in slowing down or stopping the disease. Now, we have drugs that affect the symptoms, Aricept and Mandanol, but even the pharmaceutical companies don't claim that it slows the disease. So zero, after billions and billions of dollars and all these experimentation. Yet, and now these nutraceutical companies, you know, the blue jellyfish pill and this and that, uh, they're making hundreds of millions of dollars on zero data. And why? Because some young guy was able to buy the right URL and do the right trademark and then just put some things together and sell it as a good name because it has cog in it or cognition in it or neuro in it or something. So it, you know what works? Here's what works. Harvard study, large, well-powered, incredibly well-done study. If you walk, a brisk walk, though, not, you know, when we, have, we tell our patients to exercise, oh, Dr. Shares, I, I'm in the garden. I do, those are great. Those are meditation. We mean exercise. You got to get short of breath and tired. If you do 25 minutes of brisk exercise every day, you lower your risk of Alzheimer's by 40 to 45%. Why is there nobody talking about it? Because yes. there's no money to be made. Ugh. Yet it is 100% effective. And for the younger people, you are more likely to abstain from Alzheimer's if you start exercise early. We're mm -hmm. talking about nutrition. We call it neuro. By the way, we're not <laughs> N-E-U-R, nutrition, exercise, unwind, which is stress management. R is restorative sleep. 
and always optimizing mental activity. By the way, none of those you have to pay anybody. Well, for food, you have to go somewhere to buy the food, but, but basically right. it. Combine the effect of it, we've extrapolated. We said that's a kind of, as much as 90% of Alzheimer's and a lot of dementias can be prevented. As much as 80 to 90% of the most devastating disease, stroke can be prevented. I mean, and by the way, it's free and it can be done. But here's the thing. It takes a little work. And no matter what we say, somebody says, what, what about blueberries? What about this? What about <laughs> great? But even blueberries by themselves won't do it. All right. It is a multi-pronged approach. And I, I know you talk about those five components. You mentioned a brisk walk. And it just blows my mind. It also makes me a little bit angry to be honest, to think that this isn't a lead story in the news, like that we're not just spending millions of dollars to, I don't want to say mandate, but focused on helping people understand the essential, like the amount of money that we would save, the amount of heartaches that we could save if between 40 to 45% of people can prevent Alzheimer's by doing a beautiful out in the air, brisk walk. It's just remarkable to me that this is something people... If you're hearing this right now and you're not thinking about doing that, I have to ask why. Yeah. It's crazy to me. Aside from the brisk walk, let's also talk about some of the studies that you have been a part of and can share with us some of the details regarding cardio versus strength training and then maybe even what type of strength training. Yeah, yeah. That's actually quite interesting. And it was a, a little bit of a shock to me that strength training is as important as cardio. But a particular type, although in retrospect, kind of makes sense, but you, sometimes you feel humbled that you didn't figure it out, you know, actually often, hopefully. But it, leg strength seems to be very strongly correlated with brain health. Mm. Of course, leg strength is incredibly important, especially as you get older, because one of the main reasons elderly end up in the emergency room is fall risk. And there's nothing more important for fall prevention than leg strength. But aside from that, people with bigger legs seem to have bigger brains. So whenever we hear something like that in science, we say, oh no, there's a directionality problem. Because they're healthier, therefore they have bigger legs. No, no. It, when they looked at it forward, people who developed their legs also had bigger brains, developed bigger brains. In one study, they looked at, of course, controls. They controlled for a population that is stretching, another one that they leg strengthening. And this was in people who were pre-dementia. There's a state called MCI, mild cognitive impairment, yes. pre-dementia state. So they're at high risk. And they did leg strengthening. And by doing leg strengthening, they reduced their chance of dementia in that short period by more than 30%. I mean, that's a short period to look at. So if they would have looked, so why? Because the biggest pump, you know, remember your brain is the most vascular organ in the body. But as we age, our vascular changes, vasculature changes, and when I'm talking in, our, in your 30s, they start changing, mm -hmm. especially for women, especially for moms, because uh, pregnancy is a vascular event. And what happens is uh, blood supply to the brain, we believe, becomes tenuous, at, well, at least at the microscopic level. And leg strength is important because what pumps blood mostly to your upper body is not your heart. It's the legs. The veins don't have muscles. The leg muscles keep pumping the blood up. That's one. The second thing is exercise, especially uh, strengthening exercise, seem to increase the amount of this hormone called BDNF. Yes, we love BDNF. BDNF, yes. Brain-derived neurotrophic factor. When I was at NIH, we used to pump. We would put two tubes on one side, on the other side of the brain, in the brain, and one side was BDNF, the other side would control. Lots of studies, no results. Well, mm -hmm. guess what? Exercise intrinsically and naturally and properly increases BDNF. Okay, we're going to take a quick break because this is the perfect segue to talk about BDNF. You just heard us mention BDNF in this interview. And yes, your body does produce BDNF. It should produce BDNF. And if you're exercising enough, you are producing enough BDNF. But if you're not sure, and if you want to be certain, if you want to increase the amount of BDNF, that you have, I want to share with you a product that is clinically proven to boost BDNF by up to 142%. And that is a product I take every single day in my water bottle. It is Organifi Pure. It's clinically proven to 
improve your cognition. It tastes like a lemonade. It's got a light flavor. It's 100% USDA certified organic. It can help you to think more clearly and boost your memory. Tastes delicious. I'm a big fan of all things Organifi, but if you're going to pick one, especially after listening to this episode, I highly recommend that you go with the Organifi Pure. And if you're adding one on, I might suggest the Organifi Immunity. You'll need to enter the code SHALEEM when you go to Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash SHALEEM. Again, it's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash SHALEEM. Enter the code SHALEEM for 20% off. You won't be disappointed. And your support of our sponsors is how we make this show possible. So thank you. So that's the key that is missing in healthcare. It's 100% focus on disease. We call it healthcare, but it's actually not healthcare. It's sick care. That's right. It should be 80% prevention, 20% disease, you know, at the point of disease. And if we do, we will exponentially reduce the cost, you know, to healthcare. Literally, I just don't even have the words to describe how frustrating it is where we do place our focus, you know, and certainly in these times right now, with everyone so focused on COVID and masks, et cetera, and that's not in any way to disparage how serious that is, of course, but we have to get a handle on those things that we we already have a solution to, and we got it, spread the word. I want to talk to you about sleep, if I can, for a moment. So I'm curious, I haven't read much about a correlation between chronic sleep deprivation and maybe the onset of Alzheimer's. My father-in-law, his father also had Alzheimer's, both carry the gene. My father-in-law got it about 10, 15 years earlier than his own father. He was chronically sleep deprived. I mean, there are a lot of other factors too, but with him living with us, it's almost like a science project, like the difference in just getting an additional hour of sleep is night and day for both the caregiver and the person living with Alzheimer's. That's number one. But number two, and I think kind of more for my own benefit, I'm curious, are there studies that have looked at chronic sleep deprivation or years of sleep deprivation and the impact that has on Alzheimer's? Yes. Uh, so sleep is profoundly important. And how could it not be? I mean, how could it be that evolution has created this system where we are actually at put, put in the highest risk possible? You're knocked out. You're paralyzed. I mean, we're talking about paralyzed. Yeah, you're right. Because for eight hours a day, one third of your life, how could this be beneficial? Well, it is because the whole purpose of sleep is for your brain mm-hmm. entirely. And what happens to, during that time is two things. One is memory and thoughts are organized in different files, folders, and cabinets, uh, proverbially speaking. And that's incredibly important. We know studies that one night's bad sleep, 40% reduction in attention, focus, and memory. I mean, I'm, I'm just throwing numbers, but there are lots of studies that show worse. And so the other thing that it does which is even more important, is cleansing. When people talk about cleansing and we get invited to these really fancy talks and resorts and where we give talks and and I'm not disparaging anybody or, you know, I don't judge at all, but, you know, people talk about this cleanse and that cleanse and we said there are two cleanses, water and sleep Mm. that we know of, numerically, scientifically speaking. And sleep is the ultimate cleanse. Mm. Nothing out there could even come close to sleep as a cleanse. We have lymphatic system in the rest of the body. In the last 10 years in Rochester and UVA, the, they found this other system called glymphatic system because the glial cells do the cleaning. These, these other janitorial cells, which actually outnumber the neurons by 10 to one, at night they become extra active. I mean, significantly extra. And they go and clean up the proteins, the bad proteins like amyloid, the bad connections even, the axonal connections. And one night bad sleep, they actually go awry and start attacking its own brain, their own brain. Can you define what one night's bad sleep means? Is that a a night where I'm tossing and turning or does that mean I've lost more than a certain number of hours? So to the best of our knowledge, and I like that statement because that's the most humble statement in language. We know that seven to eight hours of sleep is important and seven to eight hours of deep sleep. What does that mean? When you sleep, you go through these phases. Phase one, phase two, phase three. Now they've combined phase three and four and then REM sleep. And you really have to go into those phase three and four and REM really comfortably and deeply. In fact, the 
the way the EEG findings on your on your EEG changes significantly, much slower, much calmer. And you have to go through those cycles, which last about 90 minutes, four to five times at least, which tells you you need at least seven to eight hours. So that's what creates that cleansing. In those deeper stage of sleep, you get the cleansing and the dreaming. The dreaming is not, you know, so many poor soothsayers died because they predicted the wrong future because they couldn't read the dreams, right? You can't read. <laughs> but what the dreams are for is much more important. They organize the mind. Organize the mind. And so you need those deeper levels of sleep. That's basically it. Now, you can be knocked out, you know, like alcohol knocks you out. And people say, oh, no, alcohol, I, I do great with alcohol because it knocks me out. Well, you does, but it affects the deeper sleep. So you don't go into deeper sleep and restorative sleep. You can use barbiturates, you know, Ativan and Xanax and all that. That's great. And I, I'm not against all any of these short term or under the supervision of a doctor. And so, if somebody needs it, absolutely. There are times. But when you are on these medicines, it affects you. It affects you, the sleep pattern, the sleep depth, everything. Just because you're knocked out, it doesn't mean you are getting restorative sleep. If anybody's seen videos of uh, Michael Jackson, who was knocked out with propofol. Yes. Oh, he got seven, eight, nine, ten hours of sleep. But you've seen him talk after those events. He is completely discombobulated. Yeah. Because you don't get deep sleep, deep restorative sleep. So that's what's required as far as deeper source. Now, it's okay if you wake up once or twice or even three times a night, but you go right back to sleep because you're going to go back to those phases. But if it's interrupted and it's disconnected, then it's not going to be beneficial. So yeah, that's actually the definition of good restorative sleep. We're talking about sleep, which means I've got to share with you my absolute favorite sleep remedy. It is the Dream Capsules from My Soul CBD. I take two every single night. Now, My Soul CBD is the CBD company I decided to go with after doing my research. I love that there's zero THC. So those of you who are worried about like feeling like you're getting high, you won't have any of that. It's safe for children. All of their products are third-party lab tested. That's huge. That's really huge because there's so many CBD companies out there right now. You just have no guarantee that what you're getting and what's on the label actually match up. That's why you've got to go with a company you trust. I love Mysol CBD. They have delicious tasting gummies, capsules, little tinctures that you can put droplets underneath your tongue. Whatever it is you're looking for, they have your solution. Whether it's relief from pain, something to help you feel more alert. I love their alert pills. I just started trying those. I also love that I can take two dream capsules before I go to bed each night and it does improve my sleep. And at the same time, I know it's reducing inflammation and you know nothing is more important than your sleep. Today, you get 20% off and support the show by going to mysoulcbd.com forward slash Shaleen. Again, mysoulcbd.com forward slash Shaleen for 20% off. And have there been studies looking at individuals who may have had compromised sleep for a number of years? There are. There are many. In fact, one study, uh, so one common sleep disorder is sleep apnea. Sleep apnea, there are two types, obstructive, which is the most common one, and then central. Obstructive is because either there's too much tissue because of overweight or not even um, that's most common, or there's redundant tissue in the neck area. So when you lie down, it blocks yeah. and you hear this loud snoring. And the partner actually sees them holding their breath for a few seconds and then let go. That's sleep apnea. And most often their oxygen levels go down to below 90%. What's the number one thing the body needs? And the brain, oxygen. oxygen. I mean, almost as much or no, actually more than blood, because what's the purpose of blood? Oxygen. So sleep apnea studies have shown on malt that it increases risk of dementia and Alzheimer's by as much as 70%. So, but the good news here is, if you suspect sleep disorder, if you have abnormal sleep disorder because you can't fall asleep, there's sleep hygiene, there's cognitive behavioral therapy. We talk about that all the time. If you have sleep apnea, there are devices now that can significant. In fact, people who use the devices eliminate the risk or, or significantly reduce the risk. Or if they have things like restless leg syndrome, you can find out. Oh, most often they find out that they have iron deficiency. And so whenever we talk about prevention, a lot of people say, oh, you're blaming the person as a by no stretch of imagination. It's like saying somebody who had a heart attack and I say, cholesterol led to that heart attack. It's not like I'm blaming that person. 
I'm giving the path to all those others. Information. It's knowledge, it's resources, and even in bringing change to people, I think that it's not just the person themselves, their family, their community. We go to communities and give information how to change their communities for better brain health. Small changes matter. If you have sleep apnea, be aware. If you have sleep disorder, be aware. There are remedies that can profoundly reduce your risk of Alzheimer's or dementia. Not to make light of any of it, but when I hear statistics that women, for example, are two times more likely to have Alzheimer's, and every woman I know who has children spends a good 15 years or more of her life completely sleep deprived. And certainly I know that there are dads out there who are light sleepers because they have children, but once you have kids, you never sleep soundly again. And certainly there's this whole period of time when you're breastfeeding and waiting for that little cry that you just lose so much sleep. And I have to wonder if that increased likelihood of women with Alzheimer's in part may have something to do with that those seasons of our lives when we're rearing children that we simply cannot get sleep. People will say to me, they'll write in all the time and say, I hear you talk about sleep all the time, Shalene. What do I do if I have kids? And I say, well, you're going to have to give them up for adoption. That's the only solution because you just, you just don't sleep well once you have kids. You know, and you have to try to make up for it in other ways. That definitely is a contributor. Absolutely. You also talk not just about sleep and exercise, which you've approached, and obviously food, but stress. And stress is one of those things that we all just assume like, well, this is just life. You know, everyone's under the same amount of stress, so there's not much I can do about it. But I also, I love the approach that you and your wife have where you, you don't just want to tell people like, here, be less stressed. You offer solutions and you offer ways to help people identify habits that they can form so that this becomes more of a lifestyle. We know the damaging effects of stress. What are some of the suggestions that you offer? And if we can talk about some of the tips in the book that can help people like real practices to reduce their stress. But stress is profoundly important. So Evolution didn't care about your long-term survival. It cared about you getting enough food to reproduce and die. And that sounds so <laughs> harsh, so cold, so non-poetic that you're going to get people saying, this is going to create some anger and it's going to this, you know, but it's reality. So we are actually cheating the system and that's fine. I want to live to 80, 90 and beyond. I want to live healthy and aware and, and as conscious as I can be. Because short-term survival is sympathetic, parasympathetic system, autonomic system. Fight or flight is the sympathetic. That's a very powerful system. That fight or flight, every time you have stress, that fight or flight is coming to the forefront. Mm. That fight or flight is actually creating a system of survival, not thriving. And that's very evident. Your cortisol levels go up. Your vasculature constricts. Your hormones, as far as growth hormones go down, your insulin is affected, your thyroid is affected, your immune system is lowered. Why? Those are not too much energy to spend at a time where you're just surviving. Mm -hmm. So you're going towards survival, which means eliminating things that are not immediate survival. And this is not something I'm making. This is 101 physiology. Immune system goes down. That's why higher cancer rate among those who have chronic stress. Your sex hormones go down and thyroid's affected which affects your weight gain and everything else, your satiety and non-satiety because of these chemicals that affect your satiety and non-satiety, your sense of hunger or fullness, those hormones are directly affected by stress. So every system is affected because it's in a survival mode. If it's a short-term survival mode, it's actually beneficial because it challenges the brain, the body and the brain and the genetics says, oh, I survived. Then it actually that period, your genes are improved for short period. I'm simplifying this. Sure. That's why something like fasting, which is under your control, might be beneficial. Again, I don't want to overstate that whole science either, but there might be. But yeah. Yes. So I'm sorry. I'm, I'm very quirky about that. No, oh, not overstating the science. I appreciate that. I think that speaks to your credibility for sure. I mean, I love the approach you say to the best of our knowledge at, at this time. And we're oh. willing to, to reverse things or correct things, but based on what we know today. Exactly. Exactly. So stress, when, but if it continues, oh my goodness, that's a continual sympathetic overdrive, which means all of this. Here's another pathway that, it, as if that wasn't bad enough, your limbic emotional brain interprets situations. And now let's stick to that word interpretation because that matters. Okay. 
because one behavior is stressful for one person and not for the other person, right? Absolutely. That interpretation sends a different message to the hypothalamus if it's stressful to that person. Then hypothalamus sends a message to the pituitary. And pituitary is hormone central. Everything. Again, same thing. If it's perceived as stressful, it's survival, all of those things happen. If it's perceived as not stressful and purpose-driven, even if it's difficult, even if it's the most difficult thing, but it's perceived as purpose-driven and something that I can accomplish, that, that perception, and here that's where the dope, then a complete set of different cascade of chemicals, which are building and growing and equalizing all the hormones. And this is a fact. Nothing you have to pay anybody for any hormone concoctions or anything. It's two things. So, so what do we do? Sorry, a little bit of background. What do we do? What we do is, I'll leave the meditation mindfulness aside for a second. What we do is management, business management. Identify the stressors, specifically, measurably, the good stressors and the bad stressors. I like chess. It's hard when they beat me on the computer. It's mm-hmm. I like going to classes. I mean, I'm a perpetual student. People say you have more degrees than a thermostat. It's <laughs> I really don't mean to impress people. I love taking classes and now I want to take like art classes. I love learning to play guitar, even though I'm terrible. My wife is a great musician. I'm terrible. But that stress, why is that not causing harm? Because it serves my purpose. There's a goal I'm reaching. I learned four scale, four chords. I know half of Beatles songs with those four chords. No, not, I'm not putting down Beatles. They're phenomenal. But four chords, basically most of Beatles songs. So by doing that, it's achievable. It's measurable. It's time bound. It's almost like a stretch as opposed to a stress. Like it's stretching you. It's pushing you. It's creating plasticity. You know, it's making us grow. We use the word stress because it's, I want to make sure that people kind of take control of that word. You're right. We can actually call it a lot of other things. We can call it stretch. We can call it challenge. We can call it all of this stuff. I wanted to call it stress to kind of give them a sense of control that all stress is not equal. All that pushes you is not equal. How you control it, how you measurably control it. For example, I wanted to run the marathon is not a doable job. I want to start with 10 minutes of running a day for a month. That's specific. That's measurable time bound. And then after a month, 12 minutes and so on. And then before you know, you'll get to the marathon. In fact, this book, sorry, I don't mean to be advertising, but (laughs) I love it has 70 recipes, but it's more of a behavioral book than anything else because we're both behavioral. So giving people the tools of truly making the changes without having to spend a billion dollars on, you know, making a resort out of their home or going to a gym. You know, when you are describing stress and describing that fight or flight, describing how, which is very true, what one person perceives as incredibly stressful and makes them very anxious, and another person, they're just very relaxed and laid back. I can't help but wonder, therefore, a personality type that's more likely, that person who's like always stressed and always worked up and always anxious, are they at a greater risk of having Alzheimer's because of that? That anxiety personality actually develops very early on by mm-hmm. the models around us, the people around us and how they dealt with stress. You've seen this. And there's actually a study that shows parents. There's a, here's a stressful moment. One group of parents respond to that situation very nervously and aggress- you know, aggressively. Or, so the children learn that state. They actually develop that baseline higher anxiety state. In fact, this is the key to leadership. My PhD is in leadership. I say everything else is management. Leadership is comfort with discomfort. Okay, I love that. Yeah, because doing the things that have been done is management. To go to the new horizon, to build a business, to build something outside, of that's leadership. And for that, you have to become comfortable with discomfort. And a lot of that sadly develops early on in life because you realize that that anxiety-provoking moment is not anxiety. It's just a challenge. There's actually a great YouTube talk on this as well, a friend of ours, but where they took two groups of people. This is a beautiful study. One element was identifying the good stressors specifically and measurably, identifying the bad stressors specifically and measurably. By the way, you're not going to be good at that beginning. You're going to have to work at being able to identify better and better. But if you do that, reduce, eliminate, and delegate the bad stressors at 1% per day, 
an increase in power and tool good stressors at 1% a day, the power of that differential is beyond any leadership book you've ever read. Wow. Okay. And forget about leadership. It's going to make your life a lot better. But then there are other times where stressors cannot be delegated. So in this study in Harvard, they took two groups. One group was given the same task and the other group was given the same task. And they were going to be tested later about it. But the one group was given language that was positive. Oh, this is challenging. This is going to be hard, but it's going to be fun. It's, I'm going to overcome it. I'm going to, you know, all the positive words. And another group was given all the negative words, which is it's nerve wracking. It's going to be uh, difficult. I'm going to fail. I'm going to have to go against this other people and all the negative language. And then afterwards, they tested. They were controlled to make sure that the two groups were equal. You know, whenever you do research, so they control it. Mm-hmm. And the group that had the positive language did significantly, we're talking 40 to 50% better than the other group. So the language that you've acquired during childhood, that's great. We have no control over that now. We are where we are. <laughs> but the language that you now can foster around and identify specific things that you can't control, but create language around it and link it to the higher purpose, there it is. Those are three of the four pillars of stress management. Identify the good stressors and become good at it. I want to learn yesterday. You know, very specific in time, I'm, I'm going to become the greatest guitarist in the world. Well, that will never happen if you've ever heard me play guitar. <laughs> but I'm going to learn to play yesterday. Well, in the next three months. Like Beatles yesterday? Is that what we're talking about? From Beatles, yes. Yeah, or Hey Jude or something like that. Okay. But today is Beatles Day for some reason. I love it. So, so that's doable. Or I want to take art history class. And it's going to be tough because I'm going with these kids that are art history majors and I've never seen. But, you know, I love it. I want to learn as much as possible. And to me, the test score doesn't mean anything anymore. And I actually want to get some C's. It doesn't, you know, so that's going to change the relationship. I want to get some C's. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and what you've just mentioned, all of these things that help to reduce stress are also part of one of the other of the five pillars you mentioned, which is that mental activity, right? Yeah. So those mental activities, stimulating yourself in that way, challenging yourself, stretching yourself in that way, not only do they help the brain, but they also help to reduce our stress because yeah. they are a good stress. If your mind is not active, if these 87 billion neurons with one quadrillion potential connections firing at the rate higher than any supercomputer today is not active, it is, you know, an idle mind is a workplace of the devil. Well, an idle mind is a workplace of degeneration. Mm, yeah. The brain is using all this energy. And if you're not challenging it for your purpose, it pulls all those connections. Each neuron can make a couple of connections or as many as 30,000 connections. By the way, that's where the protection is. If each of your neurons is making thousands of connections, even if a few of them are severed from, let's say, a head trauma or from bad food, you're still protected. And there are studies like the nun studies just show that. So people who keep their mind active are protected. Now, if you're not challenging your mind, then the degeneration starts. But challenging your mind about around what? Not Sudoku or crossword puzzle. Well, those are fine. I'm sorry. I always pick on Sudoku because nobody can sue me. Mm-hmm. I, think, I hope not. But it's about more complex behaviors. We did a meta-analysis, which is one of the hardest research projects because other researchers that have done their work have to trust you and respect you and send you their work. What we found was three factors, purpose, complexity, and challenge. The activity should be purpose-driven, meaning that it serves your purpose. The activity should be complex, meaning multiple domains of the brain. When you're playing the guitar or piano or learning to dance, you're using your motor cortex, obviously. You're using your frontal lobe because you're processing figuring things out. You're using your memory centers. You're using your visual cortex. You're using your language centers. You're using your emotional brain. You're using the entire brain. That's not Sudoku. That's a brain on fire. Yeah. You're you're volunteering. You're running a show, a podcast. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful, positive stress that builds those connections. Oh, by the way, those connections I talked about, 30,000 per neuron, that's under your control at any age. You know, you hear a lot of people using the term reversing Alzheimer's, which I know for myself personally, before I started doing the research, when I would see a title like that or hear a podcast or or hear someone making claims that you could reverse Alzheimer's, 
to me, and I don't know if that was the intention, but it made me think like, oh, there's a way to cure it, to bring a person back to baseline. And I've since learned that 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 is not the case. But once there is a rapid degeneration, even after someone has entered into the later stages of Alzheimer's, is it possible through lifestyle, sleep, food, exercise, management of stress, giving that person purpose and activities, is it possible to slow the progression and even bring them back to maybe a place where they truly are? In other words, here's what I mean by that. If I just take myself and I am sleep deprived for a number of days and I'm not eating well, like my cognitive abilities are going to slide It might seem like I'm further along than I actually am. Even in those late stages of Alzheimer's and dementia, is it possible to see improvements or at least to slow the progression? There's some evidence that you can slow the progression, but reverse or even stopping it is doubtful. It's like it's a 60 degree decline angle, a steep hill, and it's rolling. Mm -hmm. And your only hope is to slow it down. Now, we were told that if we just hinted at the fact that we can stop Alzheimer's or stop or reverse it, we would sell millions of extra books. We can't. It's not fair. Even this title gave us seizures. Uh, we, we were so worried that people w- might actually think that we're saying that we have a solution to Alzheimer's. No, what we meant by this was in these 30 days, and the subtitle actually says it, a definitive food and lifestyle guide to prevent a cognitive decline. If we can slow down the, the process, isn't that worth it? Or if we can prevent millions, millions of people throughout the world that can prevent it, that would be developing, isn't that worth it? You need a comprehensive lifestyle program in your own home, period. What are the most important things? And I know we've talked about many of them today, but There's if you were to thing. focus on like, just you've got to make sure you're doing this. So first of all, you're 30 year olds in the crowd. You're 40 year old. This is the time, not just to avoid Alzheimer's, you will, but to maintain cognitive resilience, cognitive health, and actually grow that focus. You know, when you're saying that my focus is not the same, well, that's telling you something. It's not just normal aging. When you talk about food coma, there's a reason that food coma is happening. That's a window into the bigger picture of how food affects everything. Each meal can build your brain or break your brain. Mm. I would say though, despite the fact that my master's and Aisha's master's is in nutrition, all of that, and Aisha's a culinary artist, but the first place I would start people because they would see the quickest response. There's no controversy, nobody, you know, and the fact that it can be done quickly without too many elements changing the household is exercise. Start with a brisk walk. And if you have never exercised, start with 10 minutes. And if you can do more, don't. Your job is to build a habit. Your job is to work on process. Your job is to create a system in your household. And the system of exercise is to, I'm going to be walking 10 minutes a day. That's my system, no matter what, especially a brisk morning exercise. It's not just exercise. It is brisk exercise and it's exercise outdoors or in sunlight. Outdoors and sunlight is better because it, it actually helps with you with your sleep. It helps with vitamin D levels. It helps with so many other factors as metabolism. So, but exercise if that's a limitation in your living room, I mean, you should see our living room. It's, it's mini little, little dumbbells, rubber bands. <laughs> Proximity matters. And exercise first thing. Second thing is food. With food, there's a lot of noise because young, you know, confirmation bias is a terrible thing. And people want to hear good news about their bad habits. If tomorrow, after thousands of studies that show that more vegetables, more vegetables, more vegetables, but if one paper comes out that bacon helps you, that becomes the highlight. Why? People love hearing good news about their bad habits. Say that a little louder for the people in the back. The data for plants, plants, plants. I don't care how you do it. I'm fully plant-based, whole food plant-based, but I don't care. If you increase your plant consumption by 10%, guess what? You reduce your immunological diseases by 10%. Well, it's not exactly one-to-one. It might be more than one-to-one. It might be less than, but your immunological diseases your cardiovascular diseases, and your neurodegenerative diseases, go 10%, Mm. 20%. And then, but you can't say moderation. Moderation is a word that people use to get out of doing things. What is moderation? Mm. So instead of moderation, say, this is the optimal. I'm not going to change the science because I want to. But my next step is one step, 10%. But percent is difficult. I'm going to reduce processed meats. 
or eliminate processed meats. And I'm going to add two servings of greens every day. Mm. Just that factor is bigger than all the vitamins you could buy. Just that factor. Once you've mastered that, then cruciferous vegetables. Then you eliminate, you know, fatty cheese for less fatty cheese. So the two elements are saturated fat and processed sugars. So the fight in the plant-based world and non-plant-based would mean, oh, no, it's sugar that's bad. No, it's meat. Well, no, processed sugars are bad. Carbs are not bad. Complex carbs, especially bound to fiber, are by far the most effective foods. There's no question, thousands of data, Harvard studies, we were just interviewing the head of Harvard. All of these foods, the studies show, complex carbs are fine, but simple carbs are poison. Mm -hmm. Processed carbs are poison. You know, sugar is poison. On the other side, saturated fat, all fats are not equal. Omega-3s. People say, oh, your brain is made of fat, therefore you need fat. No, it's a structural fat. It's not stored fat. The structural fat, your body makes it, you don't need it. But omega-3s, you do need. Mm -hmm. Now, you can get it, if you're a meat eater, you can get it from fish. If you want to avoid fish for toxins or other reasons, you can get it for chia, flaxseed, or we did a major two papers that were just submitted, reviews, comprehensive reviews. Omega-3 in the developing brain and omega-3 in the aging brain. And prior to that, remember, we changed our ideas with data. Prior to that, we said no supplements. But now we say you might take some supplements. Mm -hmm. The reason is the brain is starving for omega-3s, especially DHA. So that's the thing. And then aging brain, same thing. And what have you found with regard to research in MCT? So MCT, medium chain triglycerides, the data is new. The data needs to be better elucidated. So to be honest, I can't comment to that. The MCT component of it, which is 7 to 10%, depending on is interesting, should be studied. Since there isn't enough data, definitely I wouldn't take it in the form of coconut oil, even as it on its own, there isn't enough data for me to act upon it, Mm -hmm. to open up that door to everybody. Because public health, you have to be really, really careful. So I say, let's wait for the data. I mean, there's data. Yeah. Anecdotally and purely anecdotally on on our end, we started implementing that into Bob's diet and have seen a a tremendous improvement, but at the same time, we've also made a lot of additional changes to his exercise. We've got him, you know, riding a bike four miles a day, exercising twice a day for 20 minutes or more. So it's hard to say which of those elements has had. You're right. You're right. But I'll tell you that exercise regimen is doing a lot of good. (laughs) It sure is. It's fun. It's awesome. Well, I mean, I could keep you on for another couple of hours and I'd like to, but unfortunately, I know you've got clients and a busy schedule to get back to and additional research to do on our behalf. So I want to thank you for the time you've given us today. And I want to encourage everyone who's listening to check our highlighted show notes today and be sure to pick up a copy of Dr. Shirzai's book. It's fantastic. Your wife is also, I mean, as if the two of you aren't talented enough, your wife is also an amazing cook and has beautiful recipes in the book. And lastly, just close us out by sharing how important is this for people to take action today? Before that, I want to thank you. And I don't mean this in an obsequious manner. If somebody knows me, they know that I'm an honorary kind of a person, but I (laughs) want to thank you. There are many people talking out there. I think there are a million podcasts out there. Yeah. But very few that hold themselves to the science, to the truth, and beautiful conversation. So I really thank you for that. Because we know that this is public health. People that can truly transmit the information, and you are one of them. So we really want to thank you about that. And the advice to the population is, don't be fooled by the shiny object. Don't even listen to us if you don't want to. But the key is, the key is in your home. The key is things that are free, but comprehensive. You have to change your diet, but in a systematic way, the way we talked about it. You have to exercise to the point that you get tired. Remember, nutrition alone has been shown to reduce chance of Alzheimer's. We talk about whole food plant-based by more than 50%. Exercise alone reduced the chance of Alzheimer's. This is in the later stages, at MCI stage, by 40 to 45%. Cognitive activity in the NUN study showed that it was the most protective thing. So people who challenge their mind. Sleep. So all you need for not just avoiding Alzheimer's, but building focus, building sharpness, 
building cognitive activity is in your hands, but it's not simple. It's not going to be found in a pill or in a blueberry or in a kale. It has to be comprehensively in a systematic way, and you will change your life. That's our goal. It's amazing. Your book could be the cure to diabetes. Your book could be the cure to heart disease. Your book could be the cure to chronic fatigue, obesity. Like I keep saying to people, like we want to say like, I have this thing. What is the pill or what is that one thing I have to do? And all of the experts I've had on my show and the research that I've done, you know, when people say I've got this or I've got that element, how do I fix it? It's like the answers are kind of the same. They're kind of the same for all these things, but for whatever reason, we just are looking for something a heck of a lot easier. Do you have a pill I could take? Is there one particular squat I could do? Is there, you know, and, but the truth of the matter is exactly what you said. It's a complex system, but it's free. Yes. And it's going to make you a lot happier and a lot healthier and live a much happier, fuller life because of it. And for those who want to reach out or connect with yourself or your wife and learn more about the practice, where can they do that? Our social media handle is sharesimd, S-H-E-R-Z as in zebra, A-I-M-D, the website and uh, Instagram and Facebook. And we have a platform where we actually take people for a month through these processes and for free. And for those who want to be part of this movement, we call it Brain Health Revolution. Invite us to your community. We'll spend from our own cost to kind of get that information in your communities if we can. That's awesome. Thank you so much for giving back. We appreciate that. Thanks again for being here today. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Brooke Powers, Vice President at Smart Life. And I wanted to tell you about one of my favorite products that we have. It's our push journal. And we created the push journal because we know that you want to be making progress towards your goals. And in order to do that, you need a better system to hold yourself accountable. The problem is you've tried countless planners and journals and nothing seems to stick, let alone be effective, which I'm sure can make you feel defeated. We believe it shouldn't be a burden to keep track of your productivity and hit your goals. We understand that motivation, organization, and sticking to a routine can be a struggle. We've motivated and helped thousands of people to identify and set goals and stay focused on daily tasks that increase productivity that actually help you hit your goals. Does this sound like you? This is all you need to do. Go to pushjournal.com and order your push journal set. While you're waiting for your journals, Download the instruction booklet at pushjournal.com to get an early start on setting your push goal and to get a little taste of how the system works. Stop wasting money on goal-setting journals or programs that don't stick long-term. Instead, find confidence in using a push journal for life. Trust me, you'll be addicted just like me. 